I'm Orion Cooling. And I'm Zach Meyer. And this is Shadow Carriers. Shadow Carriers is a curated collection of disturbia assembled by two lifelong storytellers, sonically mixed to bring you into the darkness and out again. We invite you to sit with us in the shaft of moonlight and, if you're brave enough, to step into the shadow with us. Listen. We love horror stories. We love the macabre. We love the tragic. We love the poetic. And if you haven't figured it out by now, we love wandering in the shadows where mystery and pain of the human experience hides. But this next story, we do not love. Fair warning. It has descriptions of some pretty grotesque things, including torture. We don't celebrate or salivate over it like a slasher film might, but we cannot tell this story without it. This is definitely not an episode for young minds. But it is a story that must be told. She was 135 feet of pure poison, a ship of the damned. A standard bearer for one of the most egregious for-profit incarceration schemes known in modern history, she was brimmed with agony, ungodly inventions of torture, mental devastation, and reeked of death around every corner. A flagship of the felon fleet, running the route from overpopulated prisons in England to the new penal colonies of Australia. She wasn't always the devil's barkentine. The evil that poured through her watertight planks that she was notorious for did not come from her origins. She was built in 1790 on the banks of the Salween River in Burma. Main timbers, some two feet thick, were of Burmese teak, hauled out of the jungle by elephants. With a beam of 30 feet, she was registered at 1,100 tons. Permanent ballast was Indian marble, tons of it. Crew quarters in the fossil were typical of those days, stark and uncomfortable, but the aft quarters for her officers and passengers had a significant amount of luxury. Rich paneling, soft rugs, gilded scrollwork, and exquisite carvings definitely made a show. She sailed as a merchant ship out of London's West India docks. For lavish cargo such as spices, ivory, silks, jewels, rare woods, rum, wine, savory teas, anything that could gain her owners a pretty coin. Captains of these ships were entrusted to bargain for the acquisition and disposal of cargo, always with the owner's interest in mind. Wealthy trade magnates were royally entertained on board. Her several brass cannons were routinely polished. Their mere presence and angelic glint from the sun's reflections were enough to ward off any attempt of piracy that sailed too close. For 12 years, she sailed in luxury and found massive wealth on the seas. She lived up to her christened name, The Success. But while profit flowed through her hull as she sailed to distant lands, the government of her homeland strained under its own sins and would soon require her servitude. England, in the late 17 and early 1800s, devised a horrible judicial system Political profit that benefited from a draconian approach to overinflated sentences for even petty crimes led to over-incarceration. A man could be sentenced to a lifetime in a dungeon or to be hanged for stealing a pie or a loaf of bread. I mean, even Jean Valjean only got 19 years. Well, technically, five years for what he did, the rest because he tried to run. 
Did you really just math check my musical theater reference? Also, he was French, not English. That's like comparing apples to the French penal system. I hate you so much. Two, four, six, oh, one. There were over 145 offenses, many of them petty, where the consequences were death. Think of it for a moment. If you tripped out of line or ran afoul of a constable looking to make an example out of you, you could easily find yourself on the wrong side of the bars, doomed to overinflated sentences and punishments. This wasn't a bad-people-got-what-they-deserved society. This was one of constant fear of capital punishment run amok. And the longer it went, the more emboldened those in power became to continue tightening the screws. Prisons were bursting. No segregation by sex, age, or crime. They were all jammed in unheated quarters, completely devoid of sanitary conditions. They were sending some convicts to the American colonies for the overflow, but a little thing called the American Revolution halted that. So England needed another country to send them. By 1770, Captain Cook landed on Australia and claimed it for England. Oh no, he did not discover Australia, nor did he have the authority to truly claim it for another country. Indigenous people were already living there. Yep. But, nevertheless, England saw the opportunity to establish a fresh new penal colony in Australia for the overflow of convicts. On Sunday, May 13, 1787, at the same time the American colonies were conducting the Constitutional Convention, Captain Arthur Phillip was sailing out of Portsmouth, England, with the first shipload of convicts to Australia. These were political prisoners, petty lawbreakers, debtors, and vagabonds, not your cutthroat types. But once the barracks were built on the other side, the more hardened criminals followed. In order to transport such a large number of criminals, England created the Felon Fleet. An armada of ships converted into floating jails. These ships were absolute hell. Imagine it, being squeezed into a cell on the lower decks with the other prisoners. Barely any light, stale air, chained to the wall rocking back and forth with the ocean waves, being violently tossed during storms for months. Food unbearably foul. Disease constant. Death persistent. An utter dereliction of humanity. But this was only the start. In 1802, the British government chartered the success to join the Felon Fleet. She was refitted considerably so that she would be equipped to transport the top tier of England's criminals elite murderers who somehow escaped the noose. They constructed two decks of cells, excruciatingly small chambers with only a small barred window in the door to allow a trickle of air and light to enter. Chains limited movement to only a foot or two. Already hell floating on the waves, but then came the tools of punishment that the success became infamous for. Solitary Confinement cramped cells entombed in complete darkness, with no point of reference of time or even direction. Every poor mind that entered was devastated into insanity. Well, every mind seemingly except one. The tiger jaw, a horizontal saw, fastened down with the teeth facing upwards. A poor soul would be strapped above, and their chin hovering just above the saw's jagged fangs. With each pitch and roll of the waves, the saw would jump up and bite into the prisoner's mandible bone, continuously tearing into flesh and marrow, millimeter by millimeter. A flogging rack with a cat of nine tails that snipped and snapped shards of skin from prisoners' backs. The coffin bath, a 
trough of salt water to submerge fresh and gaping wounds. The Iron Maiden, a terrible closet of metal spikes. Plus many more despicable tools of injury, torture, and all too frequently, death. Many prisoners who saw the opportunities leapt overboard instead of facing another second of the success's cruelty. The arrival roster always read significantly fewer names than they had when they departed for 49 years. For 49 years. The success ran this route. 49 years of running and torturing people who ran afoul of an impossible justice system. It's estimated she transported thousands of convicts. It's hard to imagine brutality like this going unchecked or even encouraged. But let's look at one of those in authority. John Giles Price, Inspector General of the Penal Establishments in the Colony. They said he ruled by terror, informers and the lash. Historians say he prided himself with merciless exercise of his authority. He even invented torture devices himself that prison experts squirm at. He scoffed at the idea that prisoners could be rehabilitated. With a psychopathic void of empathy, like this helming the overall treatment of the prisoners, the line between sadistic butcher and state-appointed disciplinarian blurred away to nothing, and Price relished in it. But on March 26, 1857, in Williamstown near Melbourne, Price was inspecting the convicts from the success, working in the quarries with a couple of his guards as they stood in the tramway. A mob of prisoners grabbed his legs and pulled him off into the ground. The guards ran for their lives. Price looked up from the ground to see the faces standing over him, the faces he had sent to be tormented and abused countless times, faces that salivated and grinned as they looked now over their former captor, who was now their helpless prey. They beat Price to death with rocks and iron bars and hammers. Thirty-two convicts of the success took part. Despite the brutality of his death, there wasn't much mourning in town for the loss. Price's funeral was described by the newspaper The Age as not eliciting a scintilla of popular sympathy. Justice Mulworth offered the adjourn to Supreme Court to let the bar attend the procession if they pleased. Not a single gentleman rose from his seat. Despite Price's appointment of authority, perhaps society was recognizing, albeit slowly, that barbaric treatment of convicts wasn't the way forward. After decades of filling Australian jails up with English convicts, eventually their sentences began to mature and former prisoners began to exponentially add to the Australian population as they exited their cells. Combine that with a gold rush in Victoria in 1851, the population more than tripled in 10 years. Ironically, Australia's prisons became overpopulated as well, and several ships of the Felon Fleet, including the Success, were ordered to anchor in Sydney Harbour to manage prisoner overflow. Because she was so well-equipped, the success was designated to house the most ruthless and violent criminals as they waited for a cell to open up on land. These ships were an eyesore and an ever-constant reminder to those on land of England's vile criminal justice system and oppressive rule. The local population, growing more and more with freed prisoners from these ships, wanted them gone. Finally, England ordered these prison hulks to be broken up or sold. But an administrative error caused the success to escape the list. As all the other prison ships began to disappear from the harbor, the success remained like a hangnail in the distance. No, not a hangnail. An abscess. Its damp and swollen planks now festered with the stories of trauma they carried over the previous century. Splinters of Burmese teak that sat as witness to countless acts of torment now sat 
as the last reminder to those ashore of the felon fleet and its barbarism. The rails that felt the untold number of bodies that crossed over them as they plunged into unforgiving waters just to escape the bowels of their perdition, now sat weathered by decades of storm and sun. Men were hired as watchmen and security, but most didn't last long in the position. Stories began to circulate of ghostly figures scaling the rigging at night. Loud moans and screams reverberated from within the wooden hull where the solitary confinement cells were encased. Even if you stomached the nerve to face the disembodied each night, you had the living to deal with too. Many attempts were made by the locals to board the ship with the intent on setting her ablaze. In 1885, the clerical era was fixed, and thousands from shore circling the watercraft cheered as the success was finally scuttled and sank below 72 feet of water. The locals and former inmates of the success who still felt the triggering sting of her presence breathed with relief as her topmast finally disappeared below the waterline. But that relief would not last for long. Five years later, she would be salvaged by entertainment visionaries who saw an opportunity to make the success into a sideshow attraction, a floating spectacle of horrors. These promoters banked on a new generation who weren't alive during the Felon Fleet's height to be curious and intrigued by its gore and macabre tales. And like a long, dead sea monster being resurrected from the depths, she was pulled up from her tomb. She was refitted, re-rigged, and exactly a hundred years old. She was seaworthy once more. Cells were fitted with wax dummies, with looks of despair, with plaques that read their stories. The chorus of faux inmates was quite diverse. Cell 23. George Lovelace, one of the six men of Dorset and Tepuddle Martyrs, early martyr of the Union and Workers' Rights Movement. Cell 52. Frank Gardner. Complicit in the great Lachlan Gold Caper of 1862, pirating 150 pounds of gold and murdering two guards. Cell 26. Daniel Morgan, dubbed the Archfiend of Australia, personally responsible for 92 murders. And Cell 24. Harry Power of Waterford, Ireland. He was a kid when he was arrested for poaching and assaulting a gamekeeper. He escaped from the original Chang gang, but was caught again. This amplified his sentence to 14 years on the success, with seven years in solitary confinement. Despite his criminal past, he was known for being quiet and well-mannered, even portraying politeness towards women if they happened to be his robbery victims. When he came out of the darkness of cell 24, he was surprisingly the same quiet and mannerly man. While other neighborly solitary inmates were losing their grip on reality and slipping into madness, Harry seemed to have remained unchanged by his seven years in pitch blackness in a rolling cell at sea, or maybe to the naked eye. The success toured all over Australia, from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, to Fremantle as hundreds of thousands flocked to the Saturnalia of men's sins. The promoters had the full lurid memorabilia on display. They resurrected the Iron Maiden, the flogging rack, the cat of nine tails, the coffin bath, and the tiger jaw. But the most invaluable artifact on display was Harry Power himself. Harry, now in his twilight years, was stopped on the street by a local. The man asked him if he was Harry Power. He told him he was, and asked how they knew him. 
The local explained he was just taking a tour through the success, and the wax dummy in Harry's old cell looked so much like him, the local recognized him in the flesh. That was quite odd, because no one had ever asked Harry to pose or take a photograph to dress the dummy up for authenticity. Despite his better judgment, Harry had to see for himself. He bought a ticket and toured through his former place of captivity. When he finally arrived at cell 24, and there he was, years younger but lifeless, glassy eyes and a pained expression, now stared back at him, unmoving and unblinking. Harry was entranced, living in the present yet reliving his past in the same moment as his eyes could not tear away from the dummy with the impossible likeness. The owners of the success heard about Harry's visit and had an idea that even P.T. Barnum would have been proud of. They offered him a job as a tour guide. Who better to tell the stories of those horrific conditions than a man who actually lived them? For months, Harry led countless numbers of tours. He was a natural. His stories above deck were captivating and riveting, but below deck he was hurried and distracted. The solitary confinement cells and torture devices were always a hit of the tour. But each time Harry passed by his mimic mannequin in his old cell, it was a barbed thorn drawing across his diaphragm. The tourists would gawk at these instruments that had decimated Harry and his peers, in fascination and giggling discomfort. They seemed divorced from any stain of empathy on their souls to follow them home. But while they saw historical artifacts, Harry saw faces. He couldn't block out the flood of devastating images each time he showcased the tiger jaw or the cat of nine tails. He couldn't hear his own voice reciting the tour's script over the screams in his mind as he recalled being mangled and filleted flesh being dunked in the saltwater coffin bath. He lived among ghosts and they were becoming harder to ignore. It was no longer static memories of the past that would crowd his mind, but the voices and faces of the men who endured such ruthless atrocities from many years ago, now begging for help. They didn't understand the crowd's demeanor. Were they laughing and pointing at them? While the crowds walked through the tours with nonchalance, the ghosts remained in their time. To them, the tour of the audiences had come to watch them be whipped or strapped down to the tiger's jaw. What was worse, the pain of these instruments or the smirks and giggles from heartless spectators? Why were they so lighthearted in this place? Why did they delight in this? They demanded Harry get them to understand, to help them. He was the only one who could speak for them. But no matter how hard Harry tried to get the crowds to show respect for the ship or explain to the ghost that this was just a tour, he couldn't appease his old mates. The phantoms couldn't comprehend what they had become part of the ship. Why were they on display to such callous people? They thought it was Harry's fault, and they made sure he knew it every minute. Harry's eyes were awake. It drove him down into a darkness that was far deeper than the seven years in cell 24 had taken from him. And one day, with a full slate of tours and chastising voices, Harry stared at the glassy eyes of his doppelganger, sitting in his former cell. An aged Harry Power reckoned with himself and the incorporeal company of his former cellmates. A host of his brethren joined him pleading to get the people to understand and to get the punishments to stop, but he couldn't. The erosion of Harry's spirit, which started so many years ago in cell 24, was finally complete. He could not continue on. Like so many before him, he found the only escape off the success available to him. He jumped overboard.
a man who had once before escaped the clutches of the success so many years ago, only to still succumb to the utter destruction of his spirit in his old age. The owners ran a promotional gimmick capitalizing on Harry's suicide, claiming that a man, long since freed, was still driven insane by the mere sight of the ship's ghastly relics. The tragic ending of Harry's story was now a fresh legend for the owners to offer up as meat to the vultures buying their tickets. After three years in Australia, she sailed up to London, a dock where she had once brought precious cargo and riches, she now brought the damning evidence of the warped justice once practiced by past generations of Britons. And yet she still drew hundreds of thousands in attendance to gawk at the spectacle. Even King Edward took a tour. After her allure in the British and Irish Isles waned, she settled in Liverpool Dock. An American captain, D.H. Smith, saw the opportunity to tour her in the States. So he bought the success, as is and where is, but the Atlantic laid ahead, and she was due for a massive overhaul of maintenance. Also, this was now the age of steam, so there weren't many qualified men of sail looking for jobs. And those who were around held deep superstitions against sailing on a vessel such as the success. But somehow Captain Smith made it work and found crew. On April 10th, 1912, without ceremony, she left her port, but not without sending death's kiss on the wind. Just to the south that same day, another ship left her English port for her maiden voyage towards America. One fitted for glory, but who would become synonymous with unthinkable tragedy? The Titanic. Bad winds drove the success far off course and into treacherous seas. Food ran low and fresh water was heavily rationed. The hired crew claimed the ship was haunted and refused to sleep below decks. They heard unnatural noises and groans at night down in the cell galleries. Strange apparitions in the form of arms protruding from the barred openings yearned for their release from the lower deck. Ship duties that required going below were now being neglected as sailors refused to go down there. The first mate thought the crew got too wound up from the ship's own advertisement literature. But the crew told him the noises and arms were seen reaching out from cell 24, Harry Power's old cell. When she arrived, she was an immediate hit with American audiences. She had many years of great crowds, but by 1942, she was moored in Cleveland on the Great Lakes, not making enough money to operate. Her hull began to take on water. While trying to relocate her to another port for maintenance, she took to ground on a sandbar and was left there during the winter. Lake Erie and gale winds finished her off by smashing through starboard ribs and planking, laying the entire hull open to the inland seas. The winter brought sheets of ice that hammered her away. The ironwork doors would groan as they swung open and slam close with the rhythm of the battering waves. When the ice was thick enough to walk out on, thieves purged the hulk of its relics and artifacts, even stealing the ship's wheel and figurehead. On July 4th, 1946, at about 10 p.m., 156 years after she was built, the success was seen engulfed in flames. In the black waters of Lake Erie, oh, did she burn. Eyewitnesses on the small boats who went out to her said you could see shadows screaming of fire and jumping around the blaze. Silhouettes hanging in the ratlins, running across the decks, howling within the roar of the thick inferno. Were they screaming in horror at losing their home? 
Or was it in revelry because they were finally being set free? This ship hosted so much pain, suffering, and murder for thousands of prisoners over a span of decades. The only way for humanity to move on was through the cleansing of fire. She still burns to this day out there on Lake Erie. When the conditions are right, you can make her out in the fog. Even local legend says a devious ember from the spectral fire set the oil-slick Cuyahoga River ablaze in 1969. But she continues to burn. A literal monster at sea, who escaped death time and time again, roars from beyond, ferrying all its poor, unfortunate souls behind walls of eternal flame. This ship of fear, an insidious authority that empowered men to think they were justified inflicting torture on their fellow humans, burns in the shadows and mist, swallowing the sins of the men it corrupted and severing its victims from their purgatorial pain. Perhaps we should be thankful for the flames whose kiss finally drove her towards her damnation. Because after all, she was just a ship. There was no curse laid upon her. There were no dark incantations spoken over her figurehead, ensnaring her planks to a lifetime of devilry. No, she was a symbol used by ordinary mortal men to commit atrocities. She was the ghost of Christmas future that awaited you if you dared run afoul of the impossible laws created by higher-classed men. She was the instrument of their lieutenants to dole out their vile and blasphemous punishment. She was her hooded executioner. She, on her own, was not wicked, my friends. She was made wicked. She was endowed with evil by men who craved a system of subjugation of the lesser. She was corrupted for dark purposes, and her sinister usefulness grew well beyond their wildest imaginations or control. So again, maybe we should be thankful for the fire. She can no longer be used for their purposes and misdeeds. Because this is what man is capable of when we crack our cellar door open in service of gaining power over our fellow humans. When we let temptation for money, authority, and control silence our ethics at all costs, this is the horror waiting to be released from our nightmares in order to achieve them. We always think we can make a deal with the devil while keeping him in a cage, but that lesson of hubris is laced through every cautionary folktale. Have we learned it yet? The monsters under your bed, inside your closet, just outside of eyesight in the forest, are no match for the monsters we create in the daylight. And so we say, let the flames roar and roar until every splinter is ash. Let there be no possibility of this fiend to continue any further, because when a creature of malevolence of our own making, like the success, seeps out of our terrors and into the mortal world, there's only one thing you can do. Kill it with fire.
This episode was written by Zach Meyer, performed by Zach Meyer and Orion Cooling. Production manager is Angela Davis Cooling. Associate producer is Sarah Perry. Soundscaping and engineering by Zach Meyer. Guest vocals by the Meyer Nephews. This episode was inspired by Dwight Boyer's book, True Tales of the Great Lakes. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to support our work, become a Patreon of the podcast and gain access to exclusive content. This month, I, Orion, will share a video of a very special artifact from the success itself. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash shadowcarriers. If you'd like to buy our storytellers a drink, you can donate to our Venmo at shadowcarriers. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay connected and up to date to all the upcoming episodes and events. And most importantly, if you've enjoyed your time with us today, please consider subscribing to Shadow Carriers and leaving a review on your podcast provider. As a small podcast, your reviews and subscriptions really help us grow our listener base and influence the mysterious and chaotic spirits known as algorithms. We've served you these stories for a peek to the other side. But as you leave us, we wish you fair winds winds and following skies. Hey, Henry and Leo, care to take a tour through the bowels of the Devil's Barkentine? (laughs) 